Over the years, my perspective of giving and receiving gifts has changed. Now, as a child, I could not wait for Christmas like most kids. I still can remember the days. Uh, and the joy of Christmas was opening, getting to open the present. You remember the night before, you can't, you just are waiting. You can't even sleep the night before, but you do somehow. Kids still fall asleep. And, when, and for us in our house, Vaughn and our house differed significantly. In our house, they would say the word, you can open the present now, and that was word for frenzy, an absolute frenzy. And everybody rip and tear, look at their gifts and open everything up. And it was a disaster. The room was an absolute mess with paper torn all over the place. Vonda's house, one gift at a time, they would assign the gift, and they would open it, and everybody would look, and then they would neatly fold the paper up and the bow and put it all aside and use it for later. A lot of difference between that. But the point I'm making, in the later years, the joy of Christmas was not in opening the presents, but it was in watching my kids opening the presents because I could remember the days when it was excitement to me. I found the joy in seeing the joy in their faces. As I have matured, I have found as much or greater joy in the giving as in the receiving. I mean, Vaughn and I have everything we'd ever want. We don't need more stuff, and yet I love seeing to give it to my grandkids especially. And yet both giving and receiving are part of life. Every year at Christmas, or on my birthday, or at other appropriate times, my family and my friends give me gifts. And usually these gifts reflect my individual taste. Sometimes they reflect my wife's taste. How I dress is usually my wife, because I have no clue how to dress. I go to the store and she tells me, no, you can't buy that. Why? Doesn't go. Okay, I'll take it. Let's face it, we all love to receive gifts. And there's something special about receiving something that was carefully selected for you by someone you love. Gifts express love, and giving is at the heart of the Christian faith. If you think about what the Christian faith is in a relationship to God, giving is at the heart of it all. The greatest giver of gifts is God. In James 1.17 says, For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And that means that every good thing and every perfect thing in your life, it's a gift from God. There's something special about receiving something that was so carefully selected for you by someone that you love. Gifts express love. Giving is at the heart of the Christian faith. That means every good thing, every perfect thing in your life from God, is, that includes your health, your home, your safety, your job, your children, your spouse, your parents, your church, your friends, your income, and the list goes on and on. Everything that you have, every good thing you have, ultimately comes from God. And even the ability to get out of bed in the morning or the next breath you take is a gift from God. John the Baptist said this, A man can receive nothing unless it is given him from heaven. Or Jesus in Luke 11:9 said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. From creation's first family, giving has always been a form of worship for God's people. God's greatest gift is salvation. The most familiar verse in the New Testament, we all know it, John 3.16. Hopefully you all know it. You need to. If you haven't, you need to memorize it. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In today's passage, the theme... Is spiritual growth. We will see that spiritual growth happens when we all utilize the gifts that come with salvation. Spiritual gifts. 
They're tied together. Gift-giving and spiritual growth are intrinsically linked. We're going to learn three vital truths, that every believer has a spiritual gift, and every spiritual gift is from Jesus, and every church is gifted with spiritual leaders who are to equip us to minister to each other so we can grow spiritually to become more like Christ. So we're going to pose the question, what can you do to become more like Christ? And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. And the first thing we'll see in that passage is that we need to utilize the gift that God has already given to you. In verse 7, it tells us he has given gifts to each one of us. Verse 7 specifically states, to each one of us, each believer, grace has been given. Now the grace that he's referring to here was our salvation, God's greatest gift. The word grace in Greek is the word charis. And the word gift in the Greek is the word charisma. They both come from the same root. And if we look back across the pages of our Bibles and go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a passage we looked at uh, some weeks ago, we learned that salvation is God's undeserved favor given to us. Every believer, we learn, is unified in this grace. You see, verses 4 and 5 teach us that there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one God, Father of all. Note that in verse 6, that the Father is above all, through all, and in you all. In this verse, the word is used four times. These are what genuine believers have in common. There's unity. Now mark the difference in verse 7, the passage that we're looking at right now. This is not to all. He changes the focus, but now it's to each one. Paul is moving from what all Christians have in common to how they differ from one another. Our unity does not necessarily mean uniformity. We're moving from the theme of unity to diversity, from the unity of all believers to the uniqueness of each believer. God loves his people as a whole or all, and he loves his people as individuals or each. He is not only concerned from the unity of the body, but also with the unique giftedness of every believer. To the Father, every believer is special. Each one of us, he says, as individuals received God's grace and salvation. In Greek, the New Testament, there's a definite article. It means the grace. This grace was given to us as individuals. And yet by grace, we also received the measure of God's gift or spiritual gifts. In other words, we were saved by grace, but we're also gifted by grace. Spiritual gifts are special abilities for the service of the Lord and that you received at the moment you accepted Jesus. As the Holy Spirit moved into your life, he brought with him gifts for you to use in ministry. And Warren Wiersbe defines a spiritual gift as a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7, it says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. And now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Notice this. It is the Holy Spirit who gives these gifts, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Gifts are not given by the church. 
They're not given upon graduation or seminary or Bible degree, college degree. They're not handed down from mother or father. They cannot be purchased or earned. Spiritual gifts are not human talents or natural abilities. God has given each of us natural talents or abilities, music, art, engineering, mechanics, academics. And we say that we have a knack for certain things. These are natural gifts that come with us through birth or some other development. Spiritual gifts are abilities that we did not have before and that we use for the building of the kingdom of God. They come to us through the new birth. And apart from spiritual gifts, having it and using it, we do not grow to become like Christ. In the Bible, there are five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Romans 12, 6 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, 27 to 31, Ephesians 4 to 11, and 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. And since these lists are not identical, probably all the gifts available are not mentioned. Some of these gifts are ministering gifts that build up the body, and other gifts are serving gifts that help others. Other gifts are sign gifts, that were given us at a specific time to authenticate the gospel according to Hebrews chapter 2.4. The Lord can use our natural abilities and our spiritual gifts in his service. And a person may sing a beautiful song in worship. He is using his natural ability to sing, but using the spiritual gift of serving to encourage others is part of that gift. You see, talent alone is not enough. They're very talented people. But if they're not using it for the service of the Lord, it can sometimes be self-centered. There's a poet by Alice Bennett that compares the difference. Let me read it. I have no voice for singing. I cannot make a speech. I have no gift for music. I know I cannot teach. I am no good at leading. I cannot organize. And anything I write would never win a prize. But at roll call at meetings, I always answer here. When others are performing, I lend a listening ear. And after the program's over, I praise every part. My words are not to flatter, I mean it from the heart. It seems my only talent is neither big nor rare, just to listen and encourage and to fill a vacant chair. But all the gifted people could not so brightly shine were it not for those who use a talent such as mine. Again, verse 7. Each one of us has a spiritual gift. There is no such thing as an ungifted believer. You have at least one spiritual gift, and we discover and develop our spiritual gifts by ministering with and to other believers. Betty Carroll, who's a retired missionary, she tells the story of a young man in her church whose name was Eddie. Eddie was mentally challenged and had only a childlike faith. He was never going to be mature beyond, say, five years old, and yet he loved to come to church. And over time, the custodian had patiently shown an eager Eddie how to turn the lights on and off before and after the services. And gradually, he turned it over to Eddie full to make it his full responsibility of turning the lights on and turning them off each and every Sunday. And Eddie delighted at the job. Not only did Eddie brighten the church with lights, but he also met everyone with a gr uh, broad grin and a friendly greeting. And rain or shine, people could depend on Eddie to lift their spirits and his spiritual gift wasn't turning on and off the church lights. It was in serving and edifying others. Even an Eddie can minister in some way. But Paul goes on, verses 8 to 10, that the gifts are the spoils of victory. Notice verse 8. He is referring and quoting from Psalm 68, 18, which says this, When you ascended on high, you took many captives, 
and received gifts from people, for even from the rebellious, that you, the Lord God, might dwell there. You see, it teaches us how Jesus earned the right to give believers gifts. The difference in these passages of Scripture indicate that Paul was making a general analogy, not identifying a specific prophecy of Christ. Psalm 68 is a hymn of triumph, praising God as he, David, at this point, ascends Mount Zion. This was pictured in David's celebration of returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. That's what the psalm was about. And when an Israelite king was victorious in battle, he would lead a grand parade through the streets of Jerusalem. And in the parade would be those who had been prisoners of war. And the king had liberated the prisoners or captured those in captivity. And he would also bring the spoils of war to share with the people. They would distribute the gifts, the spoils of the victory they had enjoyed. And verse 9 tells us that Jesus ascended after he had first descended. And this pictures him as the triumphant king of glory, returning after defecting the forces of hell on earth, carrying with him the trophies of his victory. This scene is foreshadowed in Psalm chapter 44, 7 to 10. It says this, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, ye gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. The gifts that we receive from God are part of this victory that the King of glory distributes to us. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, Jesus conquered Satan. He conquered sin and death. He led captivity captive, as the word speaks about, refers to here. And those who were once imprisoned by Satan, but have now been, they have now been set free. And these are those who are still in Satan's grasp, but will be saved. And upon returning to heaven, Jesus, the conquering king, it says, he gave gifts to men. And after Jesus ascended to heaven... He sent the comfort of the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of men. And with the Spirit came the gifts of the Spirit, or that which we call spiritual gifts. The phrase descended into the lower parts of the earth is seen in contrast to the fact that Jesus ascended far above all heaven. There's a contrast given here, a parallelism, a contrasting parallelism. He condescended to the womb, the earth, the grave, and even the pits of darkness, and for this God has mightily exalted him. And the point is, because of Jesus' humble sacrificing himself on our behalf, he has been exalted above all heavens, and now has the authority to give gifts to men. He has earned the right to rule over his people and to gift his people that he might fill all things, according to this passage. It also tells us that he has given us gifted men. You see, Jesus not only gave gift to each individual, but also to his combined body. To each believer, he gives divine abilities. The church in general, he gives gifted men as leaders. We see four of them listed here. First of all, we see apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent with the commission. Jesus led many disciples, but selected 12 apostles. A disciple was a learner or follower, a student of a teacher. An apostle was a divinely appointed messenger or representative. To be an apostle, according to Acts chapter 1, 22, when they were selecting a new apostle to replace Judas who had died, to be an apostle, one had to be taught personally by Jesus and to be a witness of his resurrection. And their teaching from the Lord became the foundation upon which the church is built, we learned in verse 220. 
Miraculous signs and wonders that authenticated their message often accompanied these teachings. There were no succession of apostles, and therefore there are no apostles today in the sense that it is used here in this passage. In fact, we don't find the word used in Acts after Acts chapter 16, 14. There's no record of any of them having been replaced. Once they laid the foundation, they fulfilled their task. Thank God for the ministry of the apostles. Our New Testament is a result of the work of these apostles. Second, there were prophets. Prophets were not necessarily those who foretold the future, meaning I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next year or who's going to win an election or do whatever. That's not what it's referring to here. And it's not that it's excluded, but that's not the general concept. But these are those who foretold the truths of the Word of God. And during the time after the, before the completion of the New Testament, they were only second in importance to the apostles. In the Old Testament, there were priests and there were prophets. The priests are those who spoke to God on behalf of man, whereas the prophet spoke to man on behalf of God. And the priesthood of the Old Covenant was done away with when the New Covenant came about. The believer now has direct access to the Holy of Holies. In other words, we don't need a priest to speak to God on our behalf. We have direct access in the very presence of God. Prophets sometimes gave direct revelation from God and sometimes expounded revelation that had already been given. And though they were similar to the apostles, it seems that their ministry was more local, while the ministry of the apostles had a much more broad-ranging effect. Again, the church, it says here, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But once the foundation was laid, their ministry was finished. As Wiersbe says, Christians today do not get their spiritual knowledge immediately from the Holy Spirit, but immediately through the Spirit teaching the Word. But they also sit their evangelists. Not just apostles, not just prophets, but their evangelists. The name evangelist comes from the Greek word evangelio which means good news or good message. So we, we get our word angel, good angel, good message. An angel is a messenger. An evangelist is one who is spiritually gifted to share the good news of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an ongoing gift. That one does not cease at any point along the way. And there are many people alive today, perhaps some of you in this room, who are gifted in evangelism. Some evangelists speak to large audiences such as Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or Craig Laurie or Louis Plow where some just simply evangelize one-on-one. I have a brother-in-law. He's led more people to Christ than I can ever, ever hope to have done. Evangelist, and yet it's just as natural as can be. How do you know one who's an evangelist? We see some people have this special ability to make the gospel simple. They're gifted to probe the heart, to answer objections, and encourage people to accept Christ. And the proof of an evangelist is that they lead people to Christ. And though are some specifically uh, gifted toward evangelism, we are told that all of us are called to do the work of evangelist. 2 Timothy 2, 4-5. All believers are to evangelize. But some believers are specially gifted as evangelists to share the gospel. Don't say it's not your gift. In other words, you, you don't not evangelize because you say, well, it's not my gift. We're all called to that role. And I'm praying that God will raise up many evangelists here in our church, many men and women who will bring the people to be taught the Word of God. But there's a fourth group, pastors, teachers. I always enjoy pointing out to the congregation that the Bible refers to pastors as God's gift to you. 
Yeah, it's kind of neat. But do you think of it as a gift? I'm sure some of you go, I don't think so. Not quite so sure. And yet that's what the Bible says. And I would love to preach an entire message on this very topic. God's gift to you. <laughs> I won't do that. The absence of the word some before the word teachers indicates that the offices of pastors and teachers are in reality combined into one office with two ministries. The Greek structure suggests this as well. The word pastor is often or equivalent to the word shepherd. The local church is like a flock of God. God told the Ephesians pastors in Acts chapter 2.28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among the, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He says in 1 Peter 5.2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And there are two other terms in the Old Testament that are equivalent to the word pastor. And you might have heard them in English words with different usages. The first one is the word bishop. It comes from the word episkopos. You ever heard the word episcopalian? That's where it comes from. It means an overseer or guardian. Thus it refers to the pastor's management, leadership, and oversight of the local church. The other term is the word elder. It comes from the word presbyteros. You ever heard the word presbyterian? It comes from that word, which refers to someone aged or gray hair. I qualify for that one, most certainly. Someone to be respected. I like that one. The Bible also suggests someone who is gentle and one who can defend the sheep from predators, but also lovingly care for them. Sheep can only be healthy when they're fed, and a church can only be strong when she is fed. And that's why I place such an importance on preaching and teaching the Word of God because that's part of the feeding. Pastors are also to be teachers, so they may feed the people the word of God. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says to Timothy, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor literally, uh, labor to the point of exhaustion is the literal word. In the word and doctrine, all gifted leaders of the word are not pastors, but all pastors are to be gifted teachers of the word. One of the qualifications for a pastor is that he is able to teach. No pastor who does not feed the flock of God is worth his salt. There are plenty who do not do that. They don't teach the word of God. Weak preaching makes for weak churches. 20-minute sermonettes result in Christianettes. God has ordained that pastors are always to be teachers. For us to grow, we must be grounded in the Word of God. There's a second response to our question, how do believers grow? And that is we need to understand the nature of true maturity. Verses 12 to 14 speak to this in the passage. If you have a Bible, you can look it up and see it. But according to this passage, the reason that God gave these men, these four classifications of men, is to accomplish three things. He says it is to equip to unify, and to mature believers. As these leaders teach and equip these saints, those who are equipped in turn minister to others. It is a reciprocal relationship that when lived out leads to true maturity. We see then that true maturity leads to four things. First of all, it leads to unity of the faith. Mature people are united because they have the mind of Christ. It also leads to knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ is more than cognitive or or information knowledge. It refers here to the Greek word gnosis, which is intimate relational knowledge that changes the essence of a person. And then he talks about becoming like Christ. That's part of the objective 
that we become more like Christ. As we know Christ in a relational way and grow in maturity, we begin to become more and more like him. But it also speaks here of spiritual and emotional stability that it produces. People, mature people are stable. That's part of maturity is that we're stable. We're no longer tossed about with every wind and doctrine. In the King James Version of the Bible, the word translated perfect, the better translation is the word mature. I won't get into the word tell us. I've done that before in the past. When we think of someone as perfect, you don't think of people like me because I guarantee you're not perfect. If you have any questions about that, talk to my wife, and she will vouch for that very thing. I guarantee you. That's not the idea here that we're perfect. We think of perfect, we think of Christ or someone who's without flaw. I'm not that person. So therefore, I cannot model this word that's used here. Ultimately, none of us fit that requirement. Mature is a better word. It implies that we reach a desired end or closer to it. It's the word teleos. The root word here is the word from which we get our word telephone or the word television, that which starts at one point and it reaches desired end. That's the word being used here. That we reach maturity, it's desired end. We, we grow to our desired end when re- utilizing the gifts that God has given us, both the gift he has given us personally and the gifted men he has given to the church. You see, God's objective is that every believer to grow become more and more like Christ. And to do that, he's given the gifts that we all utilize together for that to happen. And that brings up the final point that serve others as you allow them to serve you. You see, spiritual growth cannot happen if you do not minister, if you do not use your spiritual gift, or if you do not allow others to minister to you. It is not something you go off into the mountain in isolation. We need both. Simply reading the Bible or listening to sermons or attending Sunday morning or listening to Christian music and even praying alone will not produce within you spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity happens in the context of a community of servant believers utilizing the gifts that God has given us. It's not done in isolation. Doing that, two things should happen. We speak to one another truth and love. One of the great drawbacks of trying to grow in spiritual isolation is that we can become self-deceived. We need each other to tell us in love how things really are, the truth. Somebody needs to say, hey, guy, here's the truth. Our ideas, our values, our motives, all that stuff, it has to be tested against the truth, and we need to speak that truth in love, not condemning or not with ignorance, but with love, gently seeking to make the truth known. This implies that we know the Word of God well enough to discern what truth is. But it also, we learn, it, helped, it helps the body become healthy and growing. Notice verse 16. That when all these things are applied, we as individuals and as a church become healthy and grow to become more like Christ. There's a story of man, and I've used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's appropriate to what we're saying here. story of a man who quit coming to church and he was visited by his pastor. The pastor was concerned, went to his door, asked what was going on. When the man opened the door and invited the pastor to come in, they sat by the fire. And he immediately began to defend the reason for his not coming to church. He told the pastor he did not need church. He felt God's presence by spending time in nature and reading the Bible on his own. He said church was filled with hypocrites and was not necessary for his spiritual growth. And as the man was speaking, the pastor took the tongs that were sitting by the fireplace and removed one of the coals from the fire and he put it on the hearth away from the rest of the burning coals. 
Now the pastor said nothing as the man continued to speak, but he continued to look at this lone piece of coal as it began to lose its intensity. As it removed from the fire, it was getting cooler and cooler and cooler. And the man, seeing the focus on the pastor, wondered why he keeps looking in this coal. He watched, and as well, he soon realized the purpose of what the pastor what the pastor had done. Basically, he said that's the analogy of the church and being removed from it. When we are removed from the church body, we grow, lose intensity. We grow colder and colder. You see, we need each other to grow. We need each other. And I know we can be ornery people sometimes, but that's part of the growing process, is figuring that out. You see, at the heart of Christianity is the idea of grace or giving. I want to make three observations. You cannot grow spiritually in isolation. That's why we need groups. That's why we need together for worship. We have worship services in small groups that are designed to help us grow. You cannot grow spiritually if you're not serving others. If you are simply receiving and you sit in the pew and that's all you do, you're not going to grow. You need to discover how God has gifted you and utilize it. And you cannot grow spiritually if you do not allow others to serve you. We need people to encourage us and support us, especially at times like this. That's how we grow. You see, giving is the heart of spiritual growth. Giving is motivated by love. God provides the model of giving when he sent his son Jesus to die for us on Calgary. And if we comprehend the nature of this love and the magnitude of this love, we cannot help but be changed by it. I love the book by Amy Carmichael. I've read it before. I just want to read some isolated text from that book. It's called If. That's the name of the book. If by Amy Carmichael. It reminds us of the sacrificial love of Christ. Let me read some of her quotes. If I believe those whom I am called to serve and talk of their weak points in contrast perhaps was what I think is my strong points, if I adopt a superior attitude forgetting who made thee to differ and what thou hast thou hast not received, then I know nothing of Calvary love. She wrote this in the 1800s, by the way, these and those. She says later, if I can enjoy a joke at the expense of another, if I can in any way of slight another in conversation or even thought, then I know nothing of Calgary's love. If I can write an unkind letter and speak an unkind word, think an unkind thought without grief and shame, then I know nothing of Calgary's love. If I am afraid to speak the truth lest I lose affection or lest the one concerned should say you do not understand or because I fear to lose my reputation for kindness, if I put my own good name before the other's highest good, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If my soul can suffer alongside and I hardly know it because the spirit of discernment is not in me, then I know nothing of Calgary's love. If the praise of others elates me and, and their blame depresses me, if I cannot rest under misunderstanding without defending myself, if I love to be loved more than to love, to be served more than to serve, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If in the fellowship of service I seek to attach a friend to myself so that others are caused to feel unwanted or my friendships do not draw other people deeper in but are ungenerous to myself or for myself, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I refuse to allow one who is dear to me to suffer for the sake of Christ, if I do not see such suffering as the greatest honor that can be offered to any follower of the crucified, then I know nothing of Calgary's love. And if I wonder why some trying is, is allowed, I press for prayer that it may be removed. If I cannot be trusted with any disappointment and cannot go in peace under any mystery, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Her book speaks 
of the need to understand God's love and his giftedness and to be able to utilize it and share it with others so they might grow and be encouraged.